0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Better Building Systems podcast. I'm your host Clayton Ferry, and here with me today is Nick Taliska, Jim D Pasquale, and Mark Sankey. So, as you guys know, we are the Building Hot Rodders, and today we will be discussing what it really means to hot rod your building. This is our second season of podcasting, and before we get started, we want to do just some brief introductions of the team here. I am, as I said, Clayton Ferry. I'm a mechanical engineer, certified energy manager. I've been in the industry since I graduated college five years ago. So kind of short, sh- much shorter time in the industry than um, my counterparts here. But since I've been in industry, heavily focused on energy, energy conservation, um, mechanical systems, and so on. So hope you guys enjoy talking with me and looking forward to going through the uh, season two with you. So that's a little bit about me, guys. I'll let Mark introduce himself. My name is Mark Sankey. Uh, 2022 marks 40 years
1: for me in the building controls, energy, and HVAC industry, 25 years of business ownership and entrepreneurial efforts, and including founding of BS Energy, along with my wife, Vivian, 19 years ago. Through my career, I've done design work, commissioning work, performance contracting work, professional witness and sub- subject matter expert work, made and corrected many mistakes and had some success. In the Building Hot Rodders podcast, I provide the guided tours on the Wayback Machine and sometimes offer technical insights and tales of technical adventures.
0: Mark, thanks for that introduction. Nick, you want to uh, go? Yeah, thanks, Clayton. My name
2: is Nick Taliska, and my company is Applied Facility Science. We provide a few different niche services for the performance contracting industry, mainly related to measurement and verification, risk management, and data analysis and reporting. Excited to be here. Thank you.
0: Thanks for being here with us, man. And then uh, last but not least, Jim.
3: Yeah, it's intimidating to follow up these
0: guys. Uh, Jim
3: Pasquale, about 15 years, um, working on 15 years experience in design of mechanical HVAC, MEP systems, uh, professional engineer licensed in multiple states, um, self-employed now for about three years and have worked on buildings, large and small all different types of markets, and not just design. I'm also very involved with commissioning, energy management, retro commissioning, and some uh, just
0: general construction phase services. Awesome. Thanks for the introduction, guys. To start the conversation, let's have Mark start with the history of hot rodding. Okay. So in the history of hot rodding, the actual
1: term appeared sometime in the late 30s in Southern California. People uh developed a pastime of racing modified cars on empty dry lake beds near LA and uh the Southern California Timing Association came about in 1937 and actually formalized the the activity of drag racing this continued until World War II then a shortage of vehicles starting in 1941 and public requirement to increase longevity and economy of older vehicles spawned a huge growth of homegrown, self-taught talent. And when GIs returned and older vehicles were abundant, and the GIs had money and also talent, they, the hot rodding craze really started. In 1948, the first hot rod exhibition was held in L.A., over 10,000 spectators, and hot rod magazine circulation reached 300,000. Uh, the National Hot Rod Association was founded in fifty-one remains the sanctioning entity for all drag racing in the U S so in the fifties, there became a, um, schism between customizing and hot rotting. Customizing is streamlining, frenching, chopping, lowering, paint, stripes, and hot rotting is performance. In fact, in the fifties, there was big competition between, uh, hot rodders and customizers with the hot rodders being late led by guys like, uh, George Barris and Ed Roth and the Hot Rodders by Big Daddy Don Garlitz and Bill Grumpy Jenkins. So I think in terms of this podcast, what do we mean by hot hot rodding? We mean increasing performance, economy, reliability through mechanical, electrical envelope systems and not necessarily as concerned with the cosmetic appeal, but really with overall performance.
0: You know, and do you do you take that as um like my car is is old and slow and crappy, and I want it to do a lot better, or oh, I just got a car fresh from the factory, and I know it can do better, so let's upgrade it. And I think that answer is probably kind of both, right? I I think it's both because uh, it, it,
1: and actually uh, I did a lot of research on this, and you know, in the in the late fifties, early fifties, even you know, there became more and more emphasis on performance and all of the major manufacturers actually had performance divisions or skunk works as they called them, where they would observe and sometimes integrate hot rodding entities to enhance the performance of their factory vehicles. I mean, that's where Carol Shelby came from, right? Uh, the Dodge company had the Ram Chargers group that was specifically focused on building high output engines for factory sanctioned race cars. So, all, you know, the public, uh, drove public demand led by the hot rodders drove the manufacturers to, you know, improve performance. And then on the other side where the, the safety advocates that pushed back and said, well, you know, these are too fast and we still have that. Right. And we just had the Dodge demon that was, uh. Desanctioned by the NHRA because it was a factory car that's too fast to run in uh, stock NHRA
0: class. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's funny we're doing, it's not funny, but I, th- I find it very interesting that we're actually having this podcast episode um, so late in the building Hot Rodders lifetime, right? The podcast lifetime, because I think this is really a, a, a very important discussion and point to have about you know what we do and what we feel is important and kind of what drives us day to day right
2: well i I think
0: i think it lends
1: credence to why we picked the hot rodders name it wasn't just a oh this is cool but there's there's a meaning behind it and an intent and purpose behind it and hot rodders in general usually start with an intended purpose when they start working on a vehicle Oh, I want better handling, or I want better straight line performance, or I, you know, whatever it is, and then set to work with a plan in mind and make specific modifications to achieve that intended performance.
2: I, for one, love the word hot rod, because I like words that are both nouns and verbs, but when I think, so I'm interested in kind of, as we eventually bring this back over to buildings. You know, to highlight some of those differences, maybe between the customization and the hot rodding because say, I mean, I think of hot rodding and I think you're looking to improve acceleration, speed, braking, handling, those kind of, you know, performance attributes. Right. But I also thought, you know, the aesthetics was, was part of it too. Interesting. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm hearing not. And then when I thought, you know, the corollaries to a building. I'm thinking well aesthetics in the building you know what i think is cool and good looking a nice mechanical room (laughs) you know an organized (laughs) room an organized set of documentation you know so that's kind of what i thought so i'm interested to hear how this evolves over the next few minutes
0: i see it no different than you know if you're gonna say hot rod your car you know you (laughs) be organized when you do it you know there shouldn't be wires everywhere and butt splices and you have no idea when you're done what you did and where to trace this wire to and stuff you know so i don't know like a hot rodded car should have a nice clean engine bay right just like a nice clean mechanical room there you go
3: a nice nice set of record drawings to go with
0: it yeah yeah although i gotta say i've never done that in any of my any of my vehicular projects has been recording where i've wired to and done and all that i do nice clean work but don't generally record what i do so well, you're at the age where you can remember. <laughs> well, and you probably have documentation
2: on the the parts and the components. <laughs> yes, put in, right. This I is mean, true. Yeah, that, yeah, That's yeah, kind of yeah. the equivalent. You
0: might own M's. Yeah.
2: Fascinating history, though, Mark. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, what does it mean to hot rod your building? Then I know we kind of switched to the the discussion about hot rodding in general, bringing it back to buildings. Um, you know, on a high level. Just like Mark mentioned with hot rodding your vehicles, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to undertake, you know, a full blown overhaul. It's specific performance modifications based on what your desired needs are. Right? So that could be changing simple parts or it can be, you know, or it can be a complete overhaul.
2: Now is a part of this, I'm sorry, Clayton, but is it part of hot rodding your building also that these are things that can be undertaken by the, you know, actual owner of of the facility in a reasonable manner without, you know, involving an international team of experts. I would say yes. I mean, it seems to me to be a component when I think of hot rodding. You know, yeah, guys right. that can do this stuff in their garage, very yeah. skilled and expert. Yep. But you know,
3: I'd say it highly highly depends on your your market and the the skill set of your building owner. So uh, I'll
1: draw an analogy. I get a call on uh, Monday night from a young man. Mr. Sankey, hey, I'm rebuilding this 350 Chevy motor, and uh, I put he 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 got it basically free, and said I got it. Pulled the it was grenaded the oil pickup tube had come off it. You're supposed to tack weld the oil pickup tube onto uh onto the oil pump, and somebody hadn't done that, so ran dry, grenaded the main bearings and rod bearings. He got a new crank, uh, new bearings put the crank in, and as it should, you could turn it with one hand without the rods connected. Put the new pistons and rings in. Pistons move freely in the cylinders, but when he connected the rod bearings and and the rods, you couldn't turn it. And in fact, by uh, putting a breaker bar on the vibration damper bolt, he broke the bolt off in the crank, which that's always a bad day. So I took my 1950s vintage, blue point extractors over, we got the bolt out and then started to diagnose. Now, bear in mind, our workshop was a barn with a gravel floor. There was not a micrometer in sight, no calipers, no nothing. And it looked like the end play on the rods. So the gap between the bearing, uh, I mean, the crank counterweights and the bearing journals were too tight. And I said, we just have to start. Let's everything has to come apart plastic gauge all the uh, bearings and the bearings seem to gauge out okay but we need to mic out the rod distance uh, the uh, and the end gap to determine if that's what's causing the bind because it was i mean you couldn't put you could put 100 pounds of torque on it and it would not move so that kind of goes right to okay if you're the building owner sure you can do it yourself but make sure you either have the skill set or Get the correct assistance to be able to do it yourself, because otherwise, you can, you know, with a sawzall and a, a butane butane torch, you can do a lot of uh, do a lot of damage in a short period of time.
2: I think it's a great example too of you know you don't have to know everything, but it's good to know people that know things. Yes,
3: yeah. you
2: know, it goes <laughs> yeah. to that, that, that was a simple thing. He knew somebody, you know, obviously nearby that would be willing and gracious to
0: run right over and help him with this fun project. That's Mark. <laughs> right. But he had the wherewithal, I, you know, I want to do I- improvements, right? And started the process and then, okay, you get to a, an issue and assuming, like you said, Mark, you know, if it's a building, you can really mess up a lot of stuff pretty quickly, but you got to have the, the, the mindset and maybe start down the track of hot rotting per se. And And that was basically a great first effort to use as a learning experience
1: because no cost, no impact. He didn't pull the motor out of his daily driver and say, I think I'll rebuild this thing. It was, a, you know, basically a freebie
2: and build a good motor out of it. Well, so let's take this to uh, our building, you know.
0: What do you do when you decide you want to hot ride your building? Where do you start? What's the goal? do you want energy efficiency which or you know i guess there's a lot of different things right reliability um comfort that all probably comes they, they can all lump together obviously but depends on the type of building i mean well i would think of efficiency i mean like because when i think of how riding i think maybe like first thing you're going after is some improved power
2: right increasing mm-hmm. power i naturally would think okay in a building the analogy would be efficiency mm-hmm. right because you, ne- you don't necessarily want to make more btus but you want to make the BTUs you need and budget yeah. uh, more efficiently. Yeah. Start with
0: an energy audit.
2: Well, there again, I mean, that's that's one thing. I mean, you know, you could start with the energy audit, but, you know, most people maybe think about lights as they're you know, they're, you know, a large constituent of their energy consumption.
0: Yep. If you don't have LED lights, that's an easy first step, right? And that maybe doesn't take it on the professionals to get that going, you could probably engage right with a contractor per se, or not, you, maybe your in-house maintenance team could do that, switch out as, as your fluorescent lights go, you switch them out with LEDs and then eventually you have all LEDs kind of hot rodding, right? First step.
2: I, I would think so. And, and I always like to think of, I mean, lighting's often included in performance contracts, right? Mm-hmm. And because they're, you know, relatively you know, quick, simple paybacks, uh, generally. But then they're also being financed, you know, over then 2025 20, years to support the other things that aren't that economically yep. viable, if you will. So yep. that's a great example, you don't need, you know, to have a bunch of companies come in, and, you know, look at everything with lighting, you can do lighting separately and get a very good return from that. And most facilities, you know can be quite capable of either doing that themselves or, or quickly getting the outside assistance to make that happen in my experience
3: yeah no i think the oh, led great. lighting's definitely low-hanging fruit yeah. one of the you know first bread and butter building hot rotting techniques to squeeze out more you know efficiency you know with the hvac systems if you have a hydronic systems you know one of the another low-hanging fruit a lot of times is if you have a hydronic system if you have constant speed pumping with three-way valve control, you know, see if you could switch that over to two-way valve variable speed type systems. You know, there's there's a few, I, I feel like that's almost up there with LED lighting and kind of one of the first things mm-hmm. you should investigate.
1: I think one of the best things that you can do as a new hot rodder or a hot rodder in training is... Engage a good commissioning entity to Absolutely. either do to do recommissioning or retro commissioning.
3: Hundred percent. Tag,
1: tag along. Um, you'll learn more about your building than you. Y- y- there will be many, many things you didn't know, and that uh, during that analogous tune-up process, you'll start to understand what direct impact you know small tweaks can have on energy co- consumption, reliability, and
3: comfort. And Mark, I would add on to that, you know, I I wouldn't, you know, if you're, it's not just reserved for buildings that have mechanical systems that are, you know, 20 to 40 years old. You know, a lot of these buildings I've seen, you know, I've retro commissioned some buildings recently that have been built within the last five years. Um, Many of them should have been commissioned and weren't. And it's just unbelievable the amount of uh, opportunity for hot rodding and improvements in relatively new buildings, um, that you wouldn't, you may think may be reserved for for the older buildings, but, you know, with with the commissioning, there's a lot of opportunity to, you know, just, it's amazing the difference you can make by adjusting some set points, you know, like a pump static pressure set point or optimizing control sequences. Um, you know, it could be a, a relatively, speaking low cost but very high reward process as mark said not just you know the direct benefits of improved efficiency and lower utility bills but the experience and understanding you could get by walking along with a commissioning agent while you're going through that process is is invaluable
2: i think that's a great point jim too and then taking it back to you know cars and hot rodding i mean one thing is that you know the first thing is they know their they know their vehicle they know what they're working with Right, and they know all about it before they undertake that. And the same with with buildings. And I think that's probably the the best advice is to look for those high return things. And a lot of that can be done with what'd you say, just like tweaking some things too. Yeah. But they have to understand, right, how their buildings work, and especially the control systems is, you know, can be one of the things that's the the least well documented type of systems in a building sometimes. But you talk about, you know, your newer buildings. It's probably a good opportunity that you're working with some newer equipment that's capable of doing those things, but due to a lack of you know commissioning, that sort of uh work was just never done.
1: I hate to say it, but my my analogy of a building tune-up is uh don't try it yourself. You know, my first tune-ups I learned on either lawnmowers or under the hood of the car, working with someone older and more experienced than me that could in very simple terms describe what was happening and why specific things like air cleaners and point gap and spark plug gap were important and uh, how to you know adjust carburetors using a vacuum gauge and those kinds of things so all those things that if you open the box read the directions didn't seem to make make sense uh, once they're explained to you by someone operating the tools and, and operating the systems really start to be galvanized in short order. So I don't, it really is irrelevant to me, whether you want to undertake a large scale retrofit or even your own building commissioning, pay a, pay a little bit for somebody that has uh, experience and building systems knowledge and accelerate the, the time to uh, understanding what needs to be done, decrease the learning curve. And that's true really for any kind of retrofit. Hire a good engineer that has familiarity and, and uh, demonstrated experience with with uh, doing retrofits, aka
0: hot rodding. You know, going off of that, the the vehicle analogy, I feel like a lot of people in general wouldn't want to hot rod their daily driver, right? And they would want to have a professional take it to a mechanic, figure out, okay, let's do this tune up and that because, you know, you got to get to work the next day. You got to keep the, you got to keep paying the bills so i have to imagine that occurs a lot where a building owners do say "Mm, i i want to do this i want to save the money maybe we could do this but this is what pays our bills obviously right so maybe we should take it to the professional uh Uh, i
1: i have to i have to jump
0: in and say uh,
1: uh hot rodding has different meanings to different people obviously you know if you're going to build an extreme hot rod there may be uh impacts on reliability you you know yeah engine castings have limits as far as what they're toler- they'll tolerate mm-hmm. that said though professionals can do some pretty serious hot rodding if you uh, i don't know if anybody else on here knows what the power tour is so hot rod magazine sponsors a power tour every year and you take your car to different cities there you compete in drag races you get points for did I make it on time or do you drive your car to these various cities around the U S and then you have to compete in a drag race in each of those cities. And I think it was in 18, a 72 Chevelle that made a thousand horsepower and got 21 miles to a gallon on the highway, won the power tour. Wow.
0: Impressive. Well, that just wow. shows that's riding right the line between performance and reliability, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. No breakdowns and, uh,
1: you know, made a thousand horsepower. So it's all doable, but would I advise the first time hot rodder to open their hood and say, oh, I'm going to get a set of aluminum heads and I'm going to tear their motor down and rebuild and expect to drive to work the next day? Probably not. Right. But can you do, um, incremental modifications over time that improve your building performance without risk of uh reducing uptime you know reliability and maintenance costs yes
2: Well, see i think mark that's where i got thrown in your first intro about adding in the customization part like that's not hot rotting, and then we have like, like a tune-up in there so now i'm kind of thinking back and thinking maybe lighting's not hot well, I'm,
3: I'm gonna i want to yeah. jump in and i'm gonna Please. try to make i'm gonna try to make an analogy based on what Mark's been talking about with hot riding is, uh, a car versus a building and making sure you have an experienced and skilled team. You know, if you yourself, as a building owner, don't have that, because you, you know, when we hot ride the vehicle, you know, Mark was giving an example of um, how they made a mistake with the welding of when they're rebuilding an engine earlier in a podcast and ran the starved the engine of oil and you blew the engine. So you're attempting to hot ride your vehicle your car, your engine for more power, more performance, but you severely affected the the reliability of the vehicle. Uh, a similar analogy to a building I was recently in during a retro commission. Um, I'm in a building in a Northern climate, you know, it's north of Chicago. It's a water source heat pump building that was relying on the cooling tower basin heaters as their source of heat. Oh let that sink in you have you know you have 100 plus water source heat pumps on the loop you're in chicago and you're relying on a seven and a half kw basin heater that's open to the negative 10 degree atmosphere as your source of heat for the the building so someone decided to hot rod in a heat exchanger onto this loop with a dual temp two pipe heating and cooling system And, you know, long story short, without getting into the weeds of it, that process severely limited the efficiency when you got into some potential simultaneous heating and cooling issues. Um, You know, it was just not the proper fix. And it it ended up, you know, in their attempt to hot rod that heat pump loop to add more capacity, you know, more power, I guess, is a good analogy. It severely affected... um, some of the not just efficiency but reliability of the whole system in doing that they didn't freeze the building did they it, it came damn near close oh. i mean they were heat pumps were were freezing coils right. you know the, the, the water loop yeah. would drop below 40 degrees um wow yeah uh,
1: that's a well and, and i guess so in uh, now i now i've Put in a plug for the commissioning process. So if they had engaged a commissioning entity during the design process, that mm-hmm. would have been a simple, simple catch, mm-hmm. because okay, uh, immersion heater is notoriously unreliable, and if the building had gas, it'd be a pretty simple thing to put a small condensing boiler yep. on the loop. And now I have a, I have one belt and half a suspender because my immersion heater would still function in the event the Condensing boiler failed, but I have something that's pretty reliable in terms of the condensing boiler on that heat pump loop. Absolutely. And
2: and how long has this building been operating like this? Over
3: twenty years. Wow,
2: that's incredible.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know how long they were on just the basin, but they, you know, someone came in, you know, I had some time after that and put in a, a little coaxial heat exchanger that you would see you know inside of like a water source yeah, heat yeah. pump or like a water cool condenser and tie that in you know all the all the piping was undersized you know again it, that wasn't commissioned so you have potential for simultaneous heating and cooling you know cooling the the two-way uh the two pipe system um uh, it, it wow. just wasn't enough you know it, it spent right. a lot of money to get that in there and it wasn't the correct solution. Like as Mark was saying, you know, gas was available in this building. Could have been very cheap and easy in the mechanical room to put in a small condensing boiler to fix that problem, or properly integrate some of the existing systems to that system, and maybe decommission. Right. You know, do some heat You know, recovering. your basin heater yeah. is really only supposed to be used to prevent you know freezing freeze in up, the winter. It's, with it's the not tower, a heat source, right. so you have all kinds of Energy. If you just take that out of the equation altogether in the winter, you, there, there, there's a nice, you know, energy conservation measure right there.
1: Well, it's a cost reducer no matter yeah. what. You're going to switch fuel from high cost electricity to yeah. moderate cost, exactly. uh, natural gas,
3: yeah.
1: and and your heat pumps will probably run a lot better oh, yeah. because you're not trying to
0: heat with 40 degree water. Hundred percent. I'm sorry if I didn't catch it. What, what type of facility was A uh,
3: multifamily, like apartment building? Yeah.
0: Well, their electric bills are just extremely high oh. then because people are running space heaters. All, all so. the bills are, are extremely high. Yeah. <laughs> Cause It defeats the purpose of energy conservation then, huh? Mm-hmm. Just might as well have done electric heat.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's essentially what it was is a very complicated, yeah. complicated electric resistance heats. It's supposed to be the simplest form of heating and they ended up making it as complicated as it yeah. can.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Hey, that's a, that's like a, a, just a perfect example for this podcast though, I would say. Exactly. So what's
2: the, what's, what's the moral Jim of, of that, uh, anecdote there? I mean, know what you're working with before you start making changes, understand your buildings.
3: Well, you know, I was kind of tying it back to Mark's, you know, I love, I love making these analogies. Um, you know, if you, if you're hot riding a car, you know, if you, Like if you're just getting into it, you might want to be working under, uh, you know, the supervision of of that older guy with the gray hairs and the greasy fingernails that's been there before and knows the things that the instruction book, you know, doesn't tell you. You know, I think, I think that transfers over to, to hot riding a building. Um, you know, like that specific example I just gave, there's so many other ones like that. Whereas if you had, uh you know, an experience like certified commissioning authority or an experienced, you know, engineer that understands, you know, building systems and controls that's been there before, has the experience and the skills to make all the difference Um and just avoid so much wasted time, money, and, and headaches.
2: So not only increase the probability of achieving whatever new performance standard you're after, but also not screwing up something else along that route. Yeah. You know, by,
3: you don't, you don't want to be worse than useless. Right. <laughs> because you don't, you know, because a lot of times you wow. would have been better off if you had done nothing. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I, I, this wraps back to, I can't remember which podcast it was though. When we talked about the medieval guilds, right. We had masters, we had journeymen, we have apprentices. So if you're an apprentice, be honest with yourself. Don't try and do it yourself. Find a journeyman or better yet, find a master And ask the questions because in most cases, they're willing to share their knowledge pretty readily.
0: Well, yeah. And, you know, you take the analogy from vehicles, you make a mistake and it could be a a $10,000 mistake, right? By doing something wrong. But when it comes to a building, you're in the millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially. So obviously the risk and reward ratio of doing it yourself are a little bit different when it comes to hot rodding a vehicle. (laughs) And hot rodding a building, you know? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. A lot more stakeholders usually. Yeah. But I think the
2: important thing also is that, I mean, the hot rodder, you know, even though he may rely on, you know, whatever, outside assistance or help or different expertise, he's fully accountable, right? And knowledgeable of, of his vehicle, right? Of what he has and what he's looking to do. And maybe that's a big piece of too for for building owners to be. They don't have to have all the expertise to do the hot rotting, but they have to. I don't know, have that hot rotting spirit, I guess. Well, right, they, they have, have, to have to have the, the motivation. Ownership. Does that yeah, happen a lot though?
0: Like as a building owner, I assume a lot of, and say you're in your uh, industrial facility, and you know you you care about product, whatever you're making, and you just want your building to work. do, do a lot of building owners have that? mindset of, I know, I know everything about, you know, the mechanical portion of my facility, if it's HVAC and well I assume process you would know about, but, um, or do they just want it to work? Kind of the cost of operation falls down off the bottom line and it is what it is as long as it's reliable.
2: I think it's hard to make a generalization, at least in my experience. I've met some, I mean, fantastic facility owners that, yeah, treated that, that like it was, you know, well, a very important asset to him and a lot of other people as it is and took it very seriously. But I, I, yeah, then there's others that don't.
3: Yeah. I think, I think you, you could form some slight generalizations between the different you know owners and building types. So like if you're an industrial facility, you know, there's a big spectrum of owners with different skill sets out there, but you're more likely mm-hmm. to find a, a more skilled person, uh, you know, facilities maintenance crew, and you know, you might even have building engineers in an industrial facility, um, as opposed to you know, like developer-owned, like high-rise residential. Yeah, and yeah. you know, in a GSA building, exactly. Sure. So, like in a in a like in an industrial facility, you know, their their profit tends to be more driven by the uptime and reliability of all their process Mm -hmm. systems so they might not be as inclined to pay attention you know to the effects of the energy system even though it absolutely does affect their bottom line but with the rise in you know we've been seeing a rise in energy prices lately that uh, i think that's going to start affecting some people that make the decisions and and write the checks and i've seen it more so on the, the residential side where you know the building owners you know, they especially if they have common systems, they're paying that common meter bill and they're seeing double in some in some areas, uh, energy prices over the last year or so. You know, they're starting to pay attention and be more interested in you know hot riding your buildings for efficiency.
1: It's exactly what you know, Jim and Nick both said. If you look at the spectrum There's been lots of studies done on leased office space, and one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons that tenants break their lease or don't renew their lease is because of uncomfortable space conditions, or poor indoor air quality, odors, you know, stale air, sick building syndrome, all those things. So even though conservation is important, as a very high number two, indoor air. uh, I mean, indoor air quality and environment is a, is very high ranking. Now you go to an industrial facility, production is typically number one. It, Mm -hmm. it supersedes everything to the extent where they don't. And sometimes they completely disregard simultaneous heating and cooling. Uh, All we have electric heating coils, their energy cost is a very small percentage of raw material cost of all their other, process costs and they consequently look at it almost as an overhead number right and it usually if you go into an industrial site that hasn't been you know vigilant about energy costs you can go in and open eyes pretty quickly just by you know doing a simple walkthrough a level one uh, yep. energy audit that certainly will have big dollar impact but sometimes as a percentage it's not that It's not that large and doesn't warrant day-to-day, you know, observation, maintenance, review of, you know, what are the building HVAC systems doing? It's very often overlooked.
0: A lot of their time spent on just keeping the process going rather than maintaining the HVAC portion of it. 100%. Yeah, that makes sense. See, I always would have considered, like, um, you know, industrial facilities more towards like if you're gonna do an analogy you know owners of i don't know a hellcat right something really high performing and then your commercial facility is like a corolla just very simple and basic and it just keeps you going and you know as long as it gets you from point a to point b life is good but i don't know maybe that's that's probably a horrible analogy but I
1: gotta get in the wayback machine for a minute. So we did an energy audit at an injection molding plant a few years ago, and uh, plastic is a uh, hydrophilic uh, material in general, so it loves moisture. And they were having humidity problems in the summertime, and they had fourteen big air handlers, big, uh, and condensing boilers, uh, about eighteen hundred tons of chillers on site, and they said we just can't get our humidity down. And uh, okay, well, how are you running it? Well you know, we uh, run our cooling coils flat out and we open the heating coils, trying to reheat, but it's it's just not getting there. Okay, let's go look at the air handling systems. I go look at the air handling systems and they had had eight big air handlers. They just put in six more by the same design build contractor. The only heating coils they had in the units were preheat coils. so. They would preheat the air to about 135 degrees before it hit the cooling coil and then try and dehumidify.
2: And those are the new ones and the old ones? And the old ones. All of them.
1: I said, let's just shut off the boilers. What? I said, shut off the boilers. Well, then we can't heat. I said, you don't need to heat. You need to cool and dehumidify. By the end of the day, the building humidity had dropped some 25 points, percentage points they're like well how'd you do that i said uh, it's the psychometric chart and i get you know i put the psychometric chart up on a whiteboard, and here's what we were doing is adding sensible heat that the cooling coil then had to take out before it could start to dehumidify yeah. and they were like holy crap okay I, I mean that's the kind of thing that to somebody who's not a student of the psych chart and a student of hvac and they were paying a design build contractor a lot of money you know, you don't buy fifty thousand CFM air handlers without paying a pretty penny for it. Yeah. You spend some big money. And uh yeah, I don't know. It, it was just a, a just, fiasco, right? Just
0: need a little bit of tuning.
1: <laughs> well, and then they, they said, Well, can you meet with this contractor? I said, sure. So they bring the guy in the next day, and I said, So do you understand the psych chart? Yes. I said, So let's look at the what happens to the airstream coming through here? I said, do you understand that? Yes. So why do we put in these most recent air handlers? Well, I kind of knew it wasn't optimal, but I wanted everything to match the existing. What? Yeah. So anyway, they ended up saving a ton of money. And, uh, you know, obviously no, they didn't have to run their boilers all summer long anymore to provide additional load. And they shut off one chiller entirely wow
2: oh, hopefully got a nice equitable adjustment of some negative. sort from those people
1: negative nice wow. job I got a good job attaboy but still <laughs> no, I, I
2: meant from the other people you did uh, oh equipment. that's what I
1: that's what I said you should be you know telling these people you have to tear these apart you know put in a reheat coil in every one of these because now you're you're going to try and do dehumidification and temperature control just with the cooling coil valve very hard to do and uh, you know, practically impossible to do. And you're going to need some reheat coils, but I don't think they ever did it.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's tough advice from you to probably even pay for, you know? Sometimes right. when you point out something so obvious where it didn't take long to figure that out for you, uh, <laughs> and yeah. within, within the time you're, you're leaving, the problem's practically fixed. <laughs> <laughs> so again, that speaks to the value of expertise. People that have been there, done that before
0: yeah exactly definitely hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm struggling so, with this podcast so, okay. episode. I don't know so, why I just... uh,
1: well, going back to our outline and and believe it or not, folks, we always start with an outline and we don't we don't always stick to it. We go off on tangents, but that's what a podcast is all about, I guess um we talked about some of the lighting we talked about heating you know the simple tune up stuff, but I think. In my mind, i you guys all know this, but I'll tell the audience, I love control stuff. Always have, always will. And I make the analogy with controls of the migration from pneumatics and simple electronic controls to advanced DDC controls is the rough equivalent of changing from carburation to uh, direct fuel injection and computer-based control of your, your emission system of your engine and your emission system so controls especially you know i always feel good after i get a car out after the winter and i dust it off and you know check all the fluids and start it up and usually i'll have to drive it a little bit and then i'll start tweaking the carburetor and or checking the ignition timing and you know points and that kind of thing well fortunately with the advent of ddc controls and i've been around a, a couple of the of the amateur drag races where guys will get under the hood of their car with a computer a laptop and start making tuning changes to their car after every run sometimes
2: mm-hmm.
1: well i i make that analogy because it's very simple or simple to do some quick math and make control system modifications that can have big performance impacts assuming you know, what the adverse side of the impact may be. And you're, you know, you're willing to make some adjustments and take a wait and see approach to what the impact is. But if, if you don't have either a, a very good control system or b a very good control system contractor or, or in-house talent that can make those adjustments, again, hire an expert, get somebody to come in and take a look do the checking that Jim referred to earlier. Hey, making some simple tweaks can make some big performance improvements. And that's just taking advantage of technology that has evolved and, uh, you know, through generations and many companies to, to really be user friendly and, uh, provide some pretty high end control algorithms and parameters.
2: I like how that illustrates that the principles really have not changed, right? Right. The science. But the technology, and I think all of this stuff is in reach. Frankly, I mean, when you talk about, and I know you know, facility owners have a lot to do, right? But absolutely, you know, when I when I thought about this episode, and I thought about hot rodding, and I'm thinking about those images I have, you know, I was thinking about that facility owner who can, you know, take ownership for that building and apply themselves by either gaining that knowledge or learning more things about that but the psych chart i mean and we've talked about this before i mean it's a wonderful tool you know and but not and less and less people are really understanding it now a days it seems but it is can really highlight some i don't know some clear observations like i'm sure you did that
0: day mark everybody could follow along with you know some basic understanding right it's like rich versus lean and all that stuff same same principles right that that'll never change for hot rodding but well that, so that's a good point so
1: let's go back to our our boilers right rich versus lean so how do we control that in modern vehicles we use a O2 sensor right yeah and that tells you okay i'm using too much fuel well that's not how it was back in the days of carburation back right. in the days of carburation you had either a manual choke if you're old enough or a thermostatically activated choke, which, okay, once the engine warms up, we start to lean it down. Well, what's our option nowadays, you put in O2 trim on your boiler, right? Mm -hmm. You don't rely on the mechanical linkage, Mm -hmm. you can adjust based on atmospheric pressure, uh, uh, incoming air temperature, all those things. And it's all done automatically. And you can pick up a couple 3% efficiency on old boiler. Great example.
0: And you can constantly monitor it now so you so you don't go right. down that road of oh it's been like this for how many years we just would have <laughs> never and then someone's got to come in and look at it and say well go genius this has been the issue whatever you know right so yeah when i think of hot rodding i guess after this whole episode and conversation i also come to like you know that um the the vehicle cross-country road trip where you you had a drag race and drive around everywhere right the power
1: tour yeah. yeah
0: so that guy had you know probably one of the the meanest drivetrains trains in there right and he probably also had an insane amount of um sensors and and data recording and everything so like you said he can look at his laptop and find out everything that he would ever need to know i mean some people go as far as like putting um sensors on their suspension to find out how much downforce and stuff like that. Right. Yep. So, um, you know, just wrapping it up to hot rodding it, especially nowadays also comes down to technology and data acquisition and using that data to your, to your benefit. There's so much information you can gather now and and monitor and maintain and all that. So I don't know Mm. when I think of a hot rodded building, I also think of just data. Instrumented. Instrumentation, yes, sure. exactly. You know, we can we can see everything that's happening to every little detail now and, and make those fine adjustments and understand what that did to our facility and how it benefited us or potentially hurt us or whatever and make those quick and easy changes.
2: And it kind of speaks to what Mark was saying about like the continuous or periodic monitoring. Right. You know. you know, race car drivers do that too, but you can't just set it and forget it in a lot of circumstances and the more instrumentation you have and you know how to use it.
0: Yeah. You know, hot rodding comes down to, like he said, the control system and uh, instrumentation now is a lot cheaper, readily available. You know, if you're going to replace your engine or powertrain while you're at it, put in extra instrumentation and sensors so you can see what's going on and make your changes
2: exactly and just like those like flames that might be painted on the side of that 72 chevelle or something like i think the equivalent of building is nice crisp labels on the pipes and the rooms. <laughs> rooms, yeah. right yeah and nothing tells you like hey these people know what they're doing definitely and as long as you notice <laughs> the arrows aren't pointed the wrong way
3: properly labeled yeah the equipment and, <laughs> and utilities let's just start there <laughs>
2: that's kind of sexy and bitching when you're walking over a like that you see that and you're like hey okay this is good documentation is proper yeah look at it and you understand what's going on right away i'm weird that's so sexy to me
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's reality and that the you know going back to to the chevelle it was a twin turbo nitrous motor uh but the and the car was very understated uh i think it was you know just a kind of a neutral silver. Um, but you could tell from the uh, the stance and the tires that this thing had a lot going on. But um, under the hood was spotless. I mean, meticulously clean, um, you know, meticulously maintained. Mm-hmm. So that says a lot about what you expect when you look just past the aesthetics and say, Okay, now how does it perform? Um, I, I think there's, a, I agree with Nick when I go into a mechanical room and I've been in, you know, I can cite a myriad examples, but one of the best was we were in a big high school, a uh, high school in uh, upstate New York. And I looked in the, like going to the mechanical room and there's all this gutter, like residential gutter running around the mechanical room, like a mousetrap game. And the last gutter led to a floor drain. And I looked and trying to, and there's a little bit of. I look, some are under leaking control valves, some are under leaking uh, gasket, some are. It's all condensate, you know, that's dripping back and running down into the floor drain. But it was a pretty sophisticated drainage system that was installed instead of repairing the
2: leaks. I swear, (laughs) I think I may have been in that building too far. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the schools in upstate New York. Uh, yeah. A lot of places you can walk in and, you know, the same day and you get your feet instantly wet, walking into a boiler room and right. not know exactly what's going on. And then some places you can walk in in other facilities and you're like, wow, it's like a surgical suite, exactly. you know, you're ready to do surgery in there. Yep. <laughs> Mousetrap. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, that's what it looked like. You know, you expect to see a, you know, a softball come running down the gutters
2: and, you know,
1: tripping a <laughs> people. Yeah. You
2: yeah. would not look at and say, "Nice hot
0: rodding." No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a different type of hot rodding. Right. So, what are right. the key takeaways of today's episode? What What do we leave our listeners with? You got to hot rod with the right people. We got to have the right tools. Well, I th- I think before you even do that you have to have some
1: objectives yes. and the objectives yeah, yeah, yeah. can be very broad. Yep. I would like to improve my building comfort, what's your highest objective? Let's just, you know, mm-hmm. start with what's, what's most important. And is it, are you willing to make a trade-off between comfort and efficiency? Not that there necessarily is one, but mm-hmm. if you had to pick, which is more uh, important, mm-hmm. what about reliability? Do you suffer downtime? What happens during downtime? Do you have a, a backup, for any systems is redundancy required and then make the plan and engage an expert in one or all of those uh, you know that can help you get to those
2: objectives and i would start with you know attacking the things that are the least uh resource intensive to make the biggest impact you know in in a little subset of goals you have or objectives uh there's a lot of things that jim brought up and mark and clayton you too that can be done with very little cost in your building using just the existing systems you have and equipment but you got to apply that knowledge
1: and i think uh, along those lines uh, as a hot rodder one of the best things you can buy is tools so if you don't have any tools at all buy some measurement and inspection tools if you don't have a ir camera you can get Apps for your tele, for your, your your smartphone that will function as a you know low level IR camera for thermal inspection. Incredible, so yeah. just do some things to avail yourselves of uh, you know the things that are free, cheap, easy, and start to look under the
2: covers. How much do you think you can buy a sling psychrometer for on eBay? Anywhere thirteen dollars. Okay, dollars Probably yeah. what I paid. mine you know 30 years ago yeah still works too
1: and of course it does i mean what's it will forever there's no no breaking parts right what are you going to (laughs) do
2: no it's a great tool yeah no that's that's a great point though mark the simple measurement and inspection tools so
1: i would like to extend to anybody that listens to this the uh invitation to Provide some of their experiences, some feedback to say that hey, here's some of the things that we've done, or that we're considering doing, or that uh, even have them come on another episode and talk about some of their experience. Because you know, we're just uh, this is not necessarily a, a podcast that is just for us. It's for our listeners, and we always welcome feedback and uh, certainly more uh, more stories. So. Uh, just want to extend that imbi- invitation
0: yeah we would love to have you guys any anybody that listens to this and and has any input you know reach out to us and um, all of our contact information you know websites and all that is in our podcast description you can find us on facebook anything like that absolutely happy to have you reach out with any comments or thoughts or questions and we can answer them on the next podcast too so with that being said i think we'll wrap this episode up Again, challenging episode to keep it kind of high level. Hopefully as a listener, you took away where we were going with you know the importance of hot rodding and what you can do by hot rodding your facility and not just, I don't know, leaving it the way it is or thinking it's running right. You know, <sighs> like I said, it was a, a lot to talk That's about in a, you know, a short episode.
1: Podcast, don't
0: let your building be mediocre. Make it a hot rod. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you, Nick, Mark, and Jim for all of your amazing insight on building hot riding. And uh, everybody have a great day.